The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon-to-be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day, Stephen. And, you know, I promise we're not going to open up any new law schools in the near future because the entire show would be my opening instead of the content we want to get to. I'm glad you (laughs) noticed that. I have to take a deep breath to do that intro. We have to talk about truncating that, I think, Mitch. Slow down. We've got the whole state covered now at this point. Well, at least we have the Central Coast and the Central Coast covered. We definitely have the region covered. Yeah, good region. So, Mitch, we've got uh, an opportunity to talk about the Constitution and the three branches of government once again. And we had discussed the interest, and by the way, there was a lot of listener interest in the FISA courts, which of course is in the news today. So it gives us yet another opportunity to talk about the connection between the three branches of government and, of course, the fascinating issue about the FISA courts, how they operate, how they started, and really just um, some of the opportunities for the public to learn more about the courts because we might be able to deliver some of that information also today. I think you're right, Stephen. First of all, my high school civics teacher, who I don't know about you, but in, in my high school it was always taught by the football coach. And I I never paid a lot of attention to it, but I think he would be very happy that I was awake when we talked about the separation of powers and the three branches of government. What what about you? Are you think that, there's a that, good. somewhere that's happy with you? Yeah, 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 and, and, and including Rick Perry probably. Yeah, <laughs> I don't so, think he was a, awake when that was taught, but that's fine. Yeah, no, that's funny. <laughs> I actually had a member of the athletic department teach civics too, and like that must be kind of a theme. I don't, we'll have to get to the bottom of that one. It, it, I think it was. Well, it certainly was in Texas where I grew up. The high school coaches seem to have a lock on teaching history and civics. So, but what we can that could be a theme of another show. We'll that's set true. Those. So you but know, that's the way you set that because uh, well, you talked about balance power. Uh, let's do a little bit of a just kind of a, a an intro to FISA courts, and I'll I'll lead it. Uh, just to get us started, Mitch, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was established in 1978 when Congress enacted the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that is codified in the United States Code. 
The court sits in Washington, D.C. and is composed of 11 federal district court judges who are designated by the Chief Justice, that would be John Roberts presently, of the United States. Each judge serves for a maximum of seven years and their terms are staggered to ensure continuity on the court. By statute, the judges must be drawn from at least seven of the United States judicial circuits and three of the judges must reside within 10 miles of the District of Columbia. Judges typically sit for one week at a time on a rotating basis. And the only other thing I want to add that's a little bit of irony to me, Mitch, is that the court is situated on a street called Constitution Avenue. Well, I think that's perfectly appropriate, don't you? It is. <laughs> it absolutely is. And I love the way you set that up because the, the, one of the things we have attempted to do on this program, and even though it, it is at risk of being a bit professorial, is to help our listeners understand the actual law and the actual structure that sits behind the law. Because if all you listen to are the talking heads on the, the television or radio news shows, sometimes you wouldn't recognize the reality of how our justice system works. And, and, and I love the way you started with the origin of the court and how it's structured, because there's a concern right now in the past week that there's this renegade process by which the government can invade our homes, our telephones, our emails. And what you've just done is set the cornerstone of this, which is a federal court that is, a, with, that is appointed by the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So let's look just quickly at that one little thing you said and how important I think that is. There's been a discussion that this FISA court, this foreign uh, intelligence surveillance court, it somehow has political motivations. And yet you've just defined how difficult that would be to be true. You've got a court that was appointed by Chief Justice John Roberts. And I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that's worried about the integrity of Chief Justice Roberts. Well, not only that, Mitch, but you do bring up the point that there's scrutiny at every turn. And, and there's a transparency factor here, too, that I think we also want to expand upon, because that's also important, too. The idea, and, and I like the fact that you raised or you referenced the dialogue that I think, unfortunately, is partisan and, and so, so heavy on political uh, alignments or views that it, it almost uh, detracts from the real issue, and that is the composition of the court, how it started, what was the motivation, and the fact that there is oversight, and there's also a means by which the public can learn about what the courts do. And uh, I, I, like you, I think relish the opportunity to myth bust now and then, and I think that's, that might be what we do a little bit today. I, I think we will have to get to that, and, and your, your point's well taken. Let, let me bring in one step further in the history, being a bit of a history wonk here, you know, the, back in 1972, before there was a FISA court, there was a case called the United States versus the United States District Court. It's, it's usually known as the Keith case. 
And this was a case in which the Supreme Court considered the legality of an attorney general of the United States authorizing warrantless electronic surveillance of a U.S. citizen. And and to let you know that things were just as uh, anxious at that time, this was about the bombing of the CIA building. And so if you would if you would think about it and say, well, if there was ever going to be a finger on the scale saying that the government has broad authority to go after someone they suspect bombed the CIA building, you would think that would be the case. And yet, here's a perfect example of how the system works well. The U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you need a warrant. Even in that type of an extreme case here on U.S. soil, the Supreme Court said you need a warrant. And then you're exactly right. It went into the Watergate era of the 1970s, and out of that came the FISA court that very specifically, through federal legislation, defined that you have to go before a federal judge, even in the case of a question about international terrorism. You've got to go to the court and get a warrant. And so talk a little about the process of that warrant, because that's not all that different, Stephen, than when you're involved at a local level with a, a case and you need a, the police need a warrant to go after someone, it's not all that different, is it? No, no, it isn't, Mitch. And there's, I think there are apt analogies to be made here. So the Constitution, it would be the Fourth Amendment, and that is the protection that provides that uh, searches that are conducted by the government must be conducted via warrant. And if there is a warrant, that there must be probable cause articulated. And what this invites, Mitch, is a discussion really about potential emergency exceptions. Because as you cite to 1972 historically, and you speak about the importance of even then there being a need for a warrant, even in the face of very, very um, outrageous conduct, I mean, terrorist-level conduct, right, Mitch? Correct. Absolutely. That, that, that even illustrates that even under those circumstances, you may still need a warrant. So, you know, what happens today with respect to warrants is that there's both an application phase and then there's an execution phase of warrants. And there has always been in our system a preference, a judicial preference that warrant, that searches, sorry, are to be conducted pursuant to a warrant. So searches that are conducted without a warrant are presumptively invalid, which really means that there needs to be some kind of an exception. So if law enforcement does not apply for and present a warrant and they go on to conduct a search, they need to articulate an emergency that really needs to meet a high threshold that in essence states we didn't have time for it. You see right. it sometimes. Sam, we, talked about, we talked about it in the, in the case of just, and I know we go back to this simple case, but it's something I think everyone can understand. The police pull someone over to the side of the road for a, what appears to be a routine traffic stop. And if in that circumstance they believe there's an imminent danger and a threat, say, for example, of firearms being present, they don't need to say, sit right there, let me go find a judge so that I can pull you out of the car, check to see if there are firearms in the car, so that would be an immediate 
threat to the police officer. That that's a type of an emergency situation where they have the right to do a limited search for the purpose of protection, right? Yeah, that's right. Same thing with cell phones. If there's an emergency chance that someone was about to delete uh, critical information, they may be able to seize that cell phone. But once it's safe, they have to go and get a warrant. That's good. I'm glad you mentioned the mobile phone because there's a recent case law on that and it now requires a warrant. Absolutely. Law enforcement can seize the phone because it usually is considered evidence. But if they wish to get into the data... They need to do it pursuant to a valid warrant. So, you know, your car stop example, Mitch, is a good one because it actually does illustrate a number of potential exceptions. You know, a, a vehicle, for one thing, is is not subject to the same expectation of privacy that a home would be. You know, there's a reduced expectation in that kind of scenario. So, uh, you know, back to the 1972 case, though, Mitch, and your reference to the history, uh, I think... We then moved forward to 1978, and again, if we look historically at what was going on in 1978, I think we probably have presidential powers and activities within the office of the president that also gave rise to some concerns, too. I think that's interesting, and it's it's somewhat ironic, given our, given our current president's comment or reference to a Watergate-era-type situation, because the 1978 was the, the Church Commission and dealt with... Uh, uh, wiretapping and break-ins at Watergate. And so out of that, as you're exactly right, then came the, the FISA law. So, so I think this is, it's, it's great that we started there. And, and I, I say this because you talked a little about, you know, uh, loose lips in, in commentary uh, this today that, that do not really base themselves on the law. And, and that's part of my greatest concern is that people would be afraid that the government can do certain things because of comments made when, in fact, you've walked us right back down the steps that I think this conversation needs to start with, which is a federal judge or a judge in the local case issues a warrant. And the warrant, we, we assume everyone knows what it is, but the warrant is the approval by a judge that a police officer or a federal agent can then take steps, correct? Yeah, that's right. And I think when we come back from our first break, Mitch, we can expand a little bit on the the number of people that actually get involved with scrutiny here. And we can take on, I think, directly the idea of whether the president can authorize a wiretap. I mean, let's talk about how this happens. Uh, I think what we'll, we'll learn is that... Uh, it is going to be uh, perhaps a request by uh, the executive branch, but the scrutiny takes place by judges. When we get back, we'll expand on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about FISA courts and the protocol and procedure involved with warrants that are issued by the FISA courts. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. 
established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about FISA courts, and you're listening to us over Voice America Radio. And before we went out on the break, we had just moved in, Mitch, to the topic of Uh, What exactly is being released in terms of uh, who's making statements about certain things that may or may not have happened with respect to the issuance of any wiretap warrants? And uh, I think what we're going to do, Mitch, is probably encourage people to fact check everything. I love that idea because I think that's that's the way that you can make your own decision based on both reading the law and and by the way we should remind everybody that they can go to the federal court website and get a complete description of the FISA courts other federal courts there's a a fascinating letter from the presiding judge of the FISA court to the honorable Patrick Leahy senator Back in 2013, very recent as these things go, that give a complete 
detailed analysis of what steps have to be taken in order to get one of these warrants from the FISA court. So do your own homework. I'm with you, Stephen. They should fact check. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the idea, Mitch, of actually starting with the law. What a great place to start, huh? I mean, <laughs> it's just I would mix- say that, as we tell everyone, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. And as I know you were just working your way to what's in the news right now, we should reiterate the offer we made a couple weeks ago that we could be on the White House speed dial that if they don't know the law, We've no two lawyers that would help them. What do you think? No, that's good. It's accurate, actually, because, you know, if you think about it, Mitch, all the discourse that takes place, and and we get our news from a number of different sources. Some people are are, uh, TV watchers, and they spin the dial and maybe listen to or watch different stations or their print media uh, type people or their internet type people. But if you just take sound bites, I think you're just left with this messy collage. And and the, the, the way to get back to the port in the storm, in my opinion, is to go to the law. And your reference to the, uh, the letter from uh, presiding Judge Walton, and I like that you, you shared that one, it is a July 29th, 2013 letter, and the recipient is then chairman of the Committee on the Judiciary, Patrick Leahy, as you mentioned, the great senior senator from Vermont, a Democrat for those scoring at home. Uh, It's a fascinating letter because if you look at it, it appears to be responding to a genuine inquiry by Senator Leahy. By the way, Charles Grassley, senator from Iowa, is also copied in that letter. And it really, really is amazing because it is quite clear that Senator Leahy was reaching out for a very clear definition of what goes on in the FISA courts. And if you read it, and I'd encourage people to do so, it, it's very, very detailed in nature. It is. And so here's where I would suggest that, as, as we say, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer, uh, perhaps this entire firestorm wouldn't have happened had the president inquired, either read this letter, done a little homework, or talked to the lawyers he has on staff. Uh, he's got an entire White House counsel's office. He has an entire Department of Justice, all within a phone call, to, to talk about what you and I and what Patrick Leahy now knows because of the response in the court about what does it take to actually get a wiretap under the law. Because this whole discussion started when the president directly, and we don't have to talk about anonymous sources, these were the words the president used, which he said, just found out that Obama had my wires tapped in Trump Tower just before the victory. So it was a fairly declarative statement. And he then said, how has President Obama, how low has President Obama gone to tap my phone during the very sacred election process. And he wrapped up the tweets by saying, I bet a good lawyer could make a great case out of the fact that President Obama was tapping my phones in October, just prior to the election. So those combined sentences then started this entire dialogue uh, because it sounded as if the President of the United States had specific information that wiretaps had happened. 
and and you and I talked during the break that the use of the word wiretap is a term of art in the case of the law because different laws apply to wiretaps than to other types of searches, right? Yeah, that's true. And and you're right to speak to the provocative nature of the communications by President Trump. And, and no doubt that did start uh, an amazing amount of intrigue or, or suspicion. But, you know, Mitch, if you look at historically what kind of FISA warrants uh, have been presented or what the threshold is, I think it's probably important to point out that Typically, in order to justify the issuance of a FISA warrant, there needs to be evidence to suggest that a federal crime was committed by the target of mm-hmm. that wiretap or, or that the target is associating with agents of a foreign power is another broad way of describing it. So there's pretty clear-cut means or, or, or tests by which uh, they are going to be issued, if at all. That's right. And it, it, when they talk about it, in a foreign government, you need to be a diplomat or a representative of a government or someone in the United States who's being employed by a foreign power. And so the, the, the steps you talked about, and we, we don't have to go through every detailed step, but, but you mentioned there's been cases where, although the majority of these FISA warrants get granted, no question about it, 97% or so of them. But there was, as you mentioned, there was a, re- a, a recent discussion of Loretta Lynch, Attorney General, went to the court to have wiretapping requested and was turned down. You know, so it, again, it's it's not the process of whether a political appointee might ask, because clearly that has happened in history. It's that we have the filtering process of the attorney general's office, the the resources of the FBI, the Department of Justice, all being filtered in through a federal judge before the warrant gets issued, right? And so that's where the safety comes in. All of those steps have to be taken before there could actually be wiretapping in the United States of an American citizen or of a foreign agent. That's true, and, and I think, Mitch, if you go back to the question, which I think is, is pretty well-framed now, and that is whether the president can authorize a wiretap. So that question, I think, can be answered in the negative. Uh, the president can, through investigative agencies, request a warrant, but it is the court or a judge that orders it to be issued. And I think that's an important exchange there. Exactly. Exactly right. I'm glad you pointed that out because this it, it is a process and it goes back to the balance of power we started the show with. The legislative branch has created the law. They've detailed in, in very specific terms the steps that need to be taken. Then the executive branch using the attorney general, the FBI, the Department of Justice, Justice can take those steps and then the judiciary gets involved by having to approve it before it happens. So I think that's why the, the as you said, the somewhat inflammatory language of President Trump in those tweets really set off such a firestorm because it really created this polar question of, 
well, either the judiciary did all of the things, or, or either either all of those steps happened with the judiciary at the end issuing a warrant. Okay, so that's part A, that everybody went by the law and a warrant was issued to wiretap Trump Towers uh, and some person who would then qualify under the law to be wiretapped. Either that happened or somebody did it without that happening and that's an even bigger issue because they then violated a, a arms long set of laws that would be of huge consequence. Yeah, and you know, Mitch, I think that the political intrigue or the political aspect here is probably inescapable in terms of that we need to address it and talk about it uh, because if authority or a request comes from the president, it's a natural inquiry to say, well, is there consistency? So if you look at a lot of the the releases and the and the news stories on Loretta Lynch and and her signing off, uh, turning down the request to wiretap, uh, or as 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 part of the Obama administration, the first wiretap request was signed off by Lynch, but but uh, not authorized. Some of the the challenges that I think really do belong parked in political discussions are why didn't Loretta Lynch authorize a wiretap of the Clinton Foundation or illegal activities. Those are the kind of things that I think become intriguing from a political bias kind of standpoint. Absolutely. And I think the system would have balanced it out and it should have been transparent. It would go through the same filtering process we just talked about. It would end up in front of a federal judge. And for Folks to understand, I mean, those judges are available 24-7. If it's an emergency setting and they need an emergency warrant, even in the FISA court, there's a judge on duty every single day in case the FBI, Department of Justice, Attorney General, have gone through all their steps and are ready to make their application for a warrant for emergency action. There's a judge on call who can make that determination. That's so it's right. not... They sit on a rotating basis. I think what is there? There's eleven of them assigned. Is that right? Exactly right. And it yep. rotates around, and it goes through. It must be a balance of the various circuits we've talked about. There's some concern that some circuit, uh, federal circuit judges, are lean more left politically, some more right. But but this is a required to be a balanced set uh, representing the judiciary across the entire United States. So here's, uh, and, I, and you framed it well, Stephen, here's my additional concern of the, the lack of attention to the law. I mean, even yesterday, we had Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, so clearly he's a political appointee, but, but he went on television and said that James Rosen, a, fa- a Fox News reporter, had his phone, multiple phones tapped by the Obama administration. And, the, and so here you have, again, a, a specific use of language that would then, everybody who's listening now knows, well, for that to have happened, that would have needed to go through the entire process. The Attorney General, the, White, the Department of Justice, and it would have had to gone to a federal court. And the irony here is, three days before, James Rosen, the person he was talking about, went on Fox News, the station he was talking about, and said, 
I have to clarify that I was not wiretapped. My parents were not wiretapped. And yet, as you pointed out, three days later, the White House spokesperson obviously didn't listen to not an anonymous source, but the actual source of the target say it didn't happen. And yet he said it did. What he should have said, and this is what you always remind us, words matter. What he should have said was James Rosen, the Fox News reporter, subject to a federal warrant, which was granted, had to turn over copies of his email during an investigation. And that did happen. Right. Not, not through the FISA process. No, but through a federal court granting a search, uh, a request for records, and he was required to turn them over, and he did. And so one may not like that, but it went through the legal process of going, uh, warrant being presented. A sure, the, the, the probable cause affidavit was filed. There was collective scrutiny over the uh, bona fides of the, the probable cause statement. And he then had access to a lawyer to help him review whether he had to respond to the warrant before he did. It was all, it all was by the book. That's and right. So when we come back, as we're coming up on uh, one more break, Mitch, let's talk about uh, the composition of the FISA court a little bit and uh, where these judges sit and how they sit in judgment. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about FISA courts, and when we return, we'll talk about the composition of those courts and exactly what those courts do. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. 
The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Wagner and Winnick on the law. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio, and we're talking about FISA courts. And Mitch, you know, we did get some inquiries from our listeners about the FISA courts. And as I looked at some of the inquiries, I distilled all the questions down to this. What is it? What do they do? Well, you're right. That's It's great because most folks would have no reason to even know it existed unless it pops up into the news as it did recently. And as, as you explained at the top of the hour, these are federal judges that are they're already sitting federal judges. And as we've talked about before, federal judges receive a lifetime appointment. They're, they're nominated and, and nominated by the president. They're then approved by the Senate. And that's a fairly comprehensive process because once they're appointed, they can only be removed in the direst of circumstances where they've committed high crimes or misdemeanors or that they are so incapacitated that they can no longer perform the duties of the office. And we've seen a few cases in history where that's even that is a very extreme case. That so, so the 11-judge FISA panel... Uh, consists of federal judges, yes, sworn federal judges. Uh, there is no congressional confirmation for their assignments on the FISA court. It is really at the sole discretion of the chief justice. That's correct. And he rotates it, as you indicated. He rotates it among the different circuits. There's a composition of the court that is dictated by the statute that shows that there's representation from the circuits across the United States. So there's geographic distribution. They're, they only serve uh, in an active panel for a period of about a week, and then it rotates to the next group. So it, it really is set up to be a nonpartisan uh, protected system that has many voices involved all at the federal judicial level. And, you know, Mitch, on the break, we were discussing... Uh, the idea that, that it appears to be a little bit of a lopsided affair. And I think you had mentioned that the target, so the subject of the, of the search, may not have an opportunity to be heard in many cases. Well, in fact, I don't think they get heard in any case. This is a case where the federal government makes their presentation to the court. The court may choose to ask a lawyer to present the other side, not necessarily the lawyer of the target, because remember, these are investigations, highly 
uh, secure secret investigations of potential espionage or terrorism. And we don't want to telegraph that they're under review. But we do want to have the judge decide. So, so there's an aspect of the law that's relatively curious because it allows the judge to say, well, I'd like to hear somebody brief me on the other side of this argument. But they're not required to. So, so you're right. In, ni- in the most recent numbers I've, I looked at, for example, in 2013, there were about a little over 1,500 applications for FISA warrants, and, and only zero were denied. Yeah. So, it, yeah. And, you know, Mitch, I'm glad that you pointed out the fact that there is a, a good logical need in not bringing in the target to be heard on the validity of the request for the warrant because of the overwhelming safety concerns. That's right. And, and I have to say, and we talked about this oh, about a year ago in another context, that, that it does concern me a bit that you have a, a court system that doesn't have the traditional balance where you have both sides get to argue in front of a judge. Uh, it, it strikes me, Stephen, that this is similar to what we see in a, a grand jury setting at a local level where the district attorney gets to bring their case and ask for charges to be brought. And it's, it's all them. The other side doesn't get to testify. They get to yeah. listen but they don't get yeah, to testify. It is, Mitch, and that's actually a pretty good comparison. The only thing I'd add there is that even in grand jury proceedings, uh, there is an opportunity for the defense to be heard prior to the presentation of evidence to the grand jury. There's a requirement pursuant to case law that the prosecuting agency reach out to the defense or defense counsel and invite them to submit any evidence that they think might serve as mitigation or potential defenses. So there, there is at least an overture component to this where the defense does get an opportunity to be heard um, in the form of providing evidence. You are right, they don't get a seat at the table. So to that extent, it is seemingly lopsided uh, as the case is presented. Yeah, so this, this is an extraordinary s- circumstance. I, I don't want to make light of the, the FISA courts, the, the seriousness of it, the unique na- nature of it. But I, but I would go back to the fact that uh, although I do have some concern anytime there's a court held in secret and only one side is presenting, it, it does still require that balance of power. They have to follow the strict procedures of the law of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. They have to have been signed off at the highest levels of the administrative side of justice, which would be the Attorney General or the Director of the FBI, or the highest level of the Department of Justice. So so an investigator has to have percolated all the way up through those internal rules as well before it even gets before the court. And you're, you're speaking to the scrutiny process, the yes. levels of scrutiny, uh, and the review process. Yes. And I think that's a good point. Of course, what you also referenced before, and I don't want this lost on anyone, is the fact that there may be an absence of the opportunity to challenge the results of the search. That's another fascinating issue. So, in other words, let's assume the warrants issued and incriminating evidence is gleaned or developed. What now? What rights does the aggrieved party or the target have to challenge a FISA warrant? 
Yeah, that's and you know I don't think there's any case law on that. Do you? I'm I'm not familiar with that having actually happened, or at least happened to I, the level that it percolated up to a report. I have case. not, Mitch. And what I'm left to do is just make analogies to how warrants or fruits of a search are challenged in the more traditional setting. And you know I had mentioned to you on the break that that in in our system there is very often warrants presented on the strength of information provided by informants. And that's another scenario that gives rise to this, this overwhelming kind of uh, setting where the target is at a great disadvantage because he or she may not know or his counsel may not know who the informant was. However, there are procedures by which a defense attorney can still motion to the court to try to get access to the name of the informant. So I share that to illustrate that, you know, gosh, FISA courts are dramatically, dramatically different in terms of uh, the adversarial, uh, I would say, fairness, really, ostensibly. Yeah, and that, and I would absolutely agree with you. that It, it is an area that warrants scrutiny and a careful watching uh, that's I don't have any problem with the the level of concern and the level of rigor at which we review what the FISA court does and what the outcome is. I don't have any problem with that. And the legislature really has the role, as we saw from the letter to Senator Leahy, that if they're concerned, and at that time, uh, I'll just reference what was going on in 2013, the, the source of that concern was there was a discussion of whether the NSA had exceeded its authority to gather intelligence information and was actually gathering information on U.S. citizens as part of a broad sweep, an electronic sweep of tons of data. That's right. It's a, it, went, it went too far, well beyond the four corners, so to it's speak. Capturing U.S. citizens that were not part of the targets that would traditionally be limited by the FISA warrants. And so the senator, the Senate Judiciary Committee, stepped up, issued a letter and said, remind us how this is done and what are the rules that should be applied. Because if the NSA was violating those rules the Senate Judiciary Committee wanted to take action. So, again, we see the balance of power where the Senate was able to step in when they had concern about how an executive, the NSA, executive branch agency, was uh, pursuing their investigations under the law. You know, Mitch, I do want to read just the open uh, of that letter, if I can. Uh, and and here's the opening uh, salvo. Dear, Ch- dear Mr. Chairman... I am writing in response to your letter of July 18, 2013, in which you posed several questions about the operations of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the court. As you requested, we are providing unclassified responses. I think that's pretty telling. I think you know, it's true. Uh, in terms of just the need for information, you know, the overwhelming need for the information. I think that's right. So before we completely leave this area of federal courts, we've spent an hour, I think a well-deserved hour, on this one court, the the FISA court, because I do believe this story is not going to go away until we get some resolution as to whether there was either A, warrants issued and wiretapping done, or B, 
wiretapping done absent warrants, either of those are going to be huge stories once the facts actually come out. So I, I hopefully we've, we've helped people understand what the process is. But they're not the only court that people have never heard about. That's uh, right. <laughs> There's one, and you and I laughed a little about it. I mean, not that the topic is funny, but it's here we are, fairly senior in our legal careers, to have never heard of the Alien Terrorist Removal Court. Had you ever heard of the Alien Terrorist Removal Court? I have to confess that I had not heard of that court. Well, that would be two of us. Okay, so since you're inter- introducing <laughs> us, give us a broad brush definition. So in 19... 19- 96, Congress created the Alien Terrorist Removal Court. It's a special federal court authorizes the Chief Justice of the United States to designate five U.S. District Court judges to review applications for the removal from the United States of alien terrorists. So one would think that given the number of FISA warrants, you know, 1,500 FISA warrants that were issued, that, that this court would be pretty busy, wouldn't you think? I, I would think, and it also probably means we need to get an immigration lawyer guest on for that topic. That's interesting. It does, but in fact, the court has never met in its oh. entire existence since 1996. So, wait a minute, so it exists, but it has not convened formally. It's never been asked to sit and render a decision. And so I had to think about that for a minute and go, well, well wait a minute, how can, with all that's gone on since uh, 2001, how could the Alien Terrorist Removal Court never met? And I think what you see is that there are other aspects of the federal law that we have talked about. The opportunity to, if, if someone's not legally in the United States and they're, they're discovered by an investigative process to have been conducting terrorist-type activities, they either run right through the regular federal law and taken into federal court to be prosecuted. They, yeah, they would, they would go into removal proceedings. I see where you're going. They, through, through. Or they go into removal proceedings. So, so yeah. it, it turned out that this was a case where the legislature, I guess, had an answer for something that didn't have a problem. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. And let me just, there's two others I just want to talk about briefly. Some people may have known that there is a tax court, and although that's a huge leap from where we're talking about terrorism, uh, the federal tax court is also a congressional federal court that was set up separately back in 1969. And, and there's a U.S. appeals court for the armed forces that actually is composed of civilian judges who review decisions of the armed forces court of criminal appeals. I did know of the the civilian involvement in in that court actually. Yeah. So, so there are a number of circumstances in which uh, there are federal courts we might not know about that are there doing their part to keep this balance of, of power that we've talked about between the legislative the judiciary, and the executive. I think that's right, Mitch, and I I know it's your honor to give our uh, exit line, but I'm going to just say knowledge is power. Thanks for a good segment. (laughs) Well, a reminder for everyone that they can listen to a recap of today's program on wagnerandwinnick.com and on voiceamerica.com. Also that uh, you can, uh, as we always say at the end of each show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. 
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 